good to sing together the truths of the gospel. Such a sweet reminder when we get together. Sometimes when we gather together, it's easy to have flooded the guilt and the shame and the sin from this previous week. And yet as we sing together, we're reminded that as unworthy recipients of the gospel, we certainly deserve our just due of the wrath of God toward us, but Christ has absorbed it for us. And I love singing that together with you all each and every week. It is such a sweet reminder. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hosea, Hosea chapter 9. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 9 and 10 this morning, and we want to go ahead and get going, so take note of the the questions on the the screen this morning, and uh, also take note uh, definitely about number three, I'm sorry, Ms. Mary, Uh, question number three is not a question at all, because it ends with a period, see that? Um, and so it's going to be something a little bit different as we reflect on a passage that I'm going to bring up at the, at the, at the end. So please take note of that and, 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 and work to, uh, uh, um, look forward to hearing our, our reflection and response together uh, from these questions, but also uh, this number three. I have to warn you that uh, Hosea chapter 9 and, and 10 are, are not easy passages. Um, in, in fact, for many of us, they might be... Uh, quite counterintuitive to what we've always known who God is um, when, we, when we see these pronouncements of, of judgment. And there's some of the, uh, some of the harshest uh, forms of punishment that I think are, are judgment that we can, we can see uh, in, the, in, in the Scripture. Very, very difficult. In fact, if a, if a judge today made these kinds of uh, uh, pronouncements of judgment uh, upon someone, as, as harsh as they are, um, I think there would be a, a quite the, the public outcry of injustice, um, as, as there is today on, on God. Um, such an outcry of, of justice, um, because we believe uh, that punishment must fit the crime. Um, but these judgments in Hosea 9 and 10, they're, they're not coming from a fallible finite, sinful man or woman who, who is uh, in a robe uh, in a courtroom because they were voted in or appointed to that particular position. But these, these judgments and these prophecies of judgments are given to us by the Lord. Our God who is sovereign over all, who rules over all, who rules with omnipotent power. He is perfect in holiness and love. He is always just and He is always good in all that He does. So before we might come to a passage like this and we'll come with questions like, how could God be cruel to judge this way and be so, so harsh to people or at least to those who are innocent? Yeah, I get, get, the, get the wicked person, get the guilty person, but what about the, the innocent but this question assumes a, a wrong position. It assumes the position that Israel, and I mean all of Israel, regardless of age, it means us too, man, that we are innocent victims of either society or innocent victims of, of, um, of, of what happens to us and that we're not wrong at all in breaking God's law. And so God must be the one who's unjust in his judgment. Yet Hosea, as we've been walking through, it helps us to to ask the right question, and that is, knowing the depths of my sin and my wickedness, why does the Lord not judge me sooner and swifter? Why would he forgive me And why would he forgive anyone? And the same goes for Israel. Thousands and thousands of years of rebellion and and sin and evil and wickedness and outright rejection of the Lord. In fact, our passage even recalls several instances of this, of the just the, the darkest of wickedness 
that took place in Israel's history. It's the, it's the kind of stories that we didn't hear in Sunday school because they were just so hard to hear. It's the kind of stuff that when it comes on the news, we want to change the channel because we don't want our kids to hear it. It's that kind of rejection and that kind of wickedness. The thousands and thousands of years that Israel abused God's grace and abused God's mercy. So we have to have a right perspective when we read the passage this morning. So we're going we're gonna to read both chapters together at one time. Uh, this morning we're going to take a big chunk here and read it. So let's, let's get started in, in, in verse 1. Verse 1 of Hosea chapter 9. It says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wage on all threshing floors. Threshing floor of wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not be pleasing to him. It shall be like a mourner's bread to them. All who eat shall be satisfied or shall be defiled. For their bread shall be like their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and and great hatred. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. Yet they became, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the things they love. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in the meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what, what you will give. Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Even every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Israel is a luxuriant wine vine that yields its fruit the more his fruit increases, the more his altars he builds. He built as his country improved. He improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their fruit. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king. For we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what can he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds. In the furrows of the fields, the inhabitants of Samaria tremble. In the calf of Beth-Avan, its people mourn for it. And so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoice over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of its idol. 
Samaria's king shall perish like the twig of the face of the waters. The high priests of Avin, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and the hills fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. And the nations shall be gathered against them, and when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was like a trained calf, that I loved the thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people. And all your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of the battle. Mothers were dashed into pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil, at the dawn of the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Last week, well, first I want to say that may the Lord open our hearts and give us humility as we look at this word this morning, his word this morning. So last week as we talked about sin, the effects of sin, the consequences of sin, and the delusions of sin, we saw how God mercifully exposed Israel, pulled back the blanket of, of their wickedness and their darkness and the, 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 the sickness of, their, of themselves and of their bodies, riddled with the infection of, of sin. And in chapters 9 and 10, we see that it doesn't lighten up at all. In fact, what we see is we see God, in a sense, pressing the wound even further to expose more of Israel's sin and their nature. And so God, in his judgment, is proclaimed and prophesied once again. And so this is Israel's story. And this story of Israel is, is our story, as we've been saying throughout the week, or the week's, that as Israel has gone, so is humanity. Israel is a picture of all of humanity. We see something very interesting in this story. We see a reversal take place. And that's a reversal of the home, of what is, what is home. When, when, I, when I think of the word home, there's lots of things that come to my mind, but mainly is the, the home that I grew up in in, in Melbourne. Uh, the home where I grew up in uh, was, was, was great. I, I loved it. It was such a great place. I'm very grateful for, for God's grace in, in that. It's a great place to, to grow up. And I understand that not everybody, not everybody in this room shares that same experience where you had a, a happy home. But we all understand that when we hear that word, though, we know that generally it means a place of security, a place of rest, and a place of of, of love. It's the kind of place where you can come and you can, you can relax and you can kick off your shoes and just be yourself. And so we, we make our homes and, and, and design our homes and, and, and get furniture and we put pictures up and we paint colors in our home so that we can feel that comfort and that rest and, and security. You know, when we're, at, when we're at our home, we don't have to impress anyone. We don't have to impress anyone. We don't have to seek or, or win someone else's uh, uh, approval. You can just be you. That's home. We've been in Statesboro now for, for eight years, and that's actually eight years, I think, this week. We've been, we've been in Statesboro, and, 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 and not to diminish other years, but it really seems in this past, this, this past year where, where it really feels like for us as Roberts, and for Christina and I definitely, and it feels like we're, that we're, we're home. We're really home. There isn't this lingering thought in my mind, uh, Ben, this really isn't your house. This really isn't your, 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 your place. And that was, my, that, was my, that was my mindset. And home is such a great place, right? What's the, what's the famous line? We all know it, no matter what generation you are. There's no place like home. Who said that? Dorothy. That's right. 
Dorothy said that, right? No place, there's no place like home. Actually, she said it three times, right? There's no place like, like home. And there's a reason for that, because God created man. And when God created man, guess what God did with man? He created a home, and he put them in it. He created the earth, and he created the, everything of the earth, and he made it good. And even in its goodness, God still created a home for Adam and Eve, and he put them there in a place called Eden. And yet we know what the story, what happened from there. They rebelled against God, against God's authority. They, they believed the lie, the delusion that we talked about last week, the, the delusion that they know how to rule themselves better than, than God does. That, that they believe, and so do we, and every sin that we, we commit, every temptation we give into, is that we think that we will be more free without him. And what ended up happening was enslavement. And we end up ensla- enslaved to, to sin into our, into ourself. And so this home that God per- provided and gave to them of safety and provision and, and abundance, God removed them from. God exiled them from this, from this garden. And in, its, in the place, it's so important that this, this home idea that he put angels to guard its entrance with flaming swords so that we will never go back into. Humanity is a long way from Eden now, aren't we? We're a long way from Eden, but the point is still there. Is we're still homeless. We're still homeless. The story continues, though. God called a man named Abram, called him out of his land to be a new people in a new nation, and he changed his name to, to, to Abraham, promised him a new beginning. And at the, the heart of the promise, and the heart of, the, of this new beginning and new people is, is Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you and your multitude of a family, I'm going to give you a new home. I'm going to give you a, a, a new home, a, a home that is flowing with milk and honey, which means abundance, right? It's not Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, right? Israel is not Willy Wonka land, right? And he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a place of just, just limitless abundance. And if you're obedient to me, I will bless that abundance and continue in that abundance. And we know Abraham didn't, doesn't really get there. And eventually the people go into Egypt. That's far from that promise, isn't it? That's far from being at, being at home. But, but God, holding to his promise, knows, calls out Moses. Moses to deliver his, his people and, and God flexing the power of his might and his sovereign hand over all the nations leads his people out. Leads them through the ten plagues and the Passover. He parts the Red Sea and he, he brings the people into the wilderness up to the mountain where Moses first encountered the Lord. In fact, this, we read this pat we read a, a, a glimpse back to that in, in verse 10 of chapter 9. It says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like first fruit in the fig tree when it's first saw its season, I saw your fathers. He's pointing back to this. So this is where they became a nation. You know, a generation later, it took a whole other generation, through Joshua, you guys know the story, you know what happened. But through Joshua, then God led his people into the, into the promised land. And as they went into the land, the people were always to take note they were always to take note that it was God who was leading the way. It was God who was, who was going before them to drive out their enemies. And it was God who was going to provide them and make this land into a, into a home. Into, a, into, by the way, a home that they didn't even build. They were going to move in to a new place of rest and provision and protection. But this new home, this promised land, you know, we, we kind of see the story being drawn out even further that this, this promised land, even, even in that wasn't its, its, its perfect fulfillment. That wasn't exactly God's intended purposes all the way, right? It's definitely to get there, but it was to point to a, a greater fulfillment, a greater reality, and that is a new home, a perfect home for this new humanity that he was going to create. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says, But according to his promise, we are awaiting the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
of the exile from, from God, the separation of sin that has been brought between us and God, our restless wandering, this homelessness feeling that we have will finally come to an end. In Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, the, the covenant that God made with, with Moses and the nation of, of Israel in chapters 27 and 28, God lays out to them their, the stipulations, but then the blessings and the cursings if you, if you obey the law of, of God and in this, in this covenant. And here's the gist. If you are obedient, then I will, I will bless you. I will take care of you. Every, every one of your needs will be met. Your enemies will not overtake you. I will, I will bless you. you will, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And that there was curses. And the curse summed sum down to this is this. A curse of exile. A curse of you will no longer be in this land anymore. I will take you from your home. Like we saw in Eden. That they would be removed. And when you're removed and you're, and you're wandering and you're not at home, it's restless. They would, they would be in slavery. And in fact, in this curse, it would be a reversal of the exodus. The exodus and rewind. And that's what brings us to Hosea 9 and 10. That's what points us to Hosea 9 and 10. See, and I, we, we've, we've talked about the context, and, and the context you'll see in verses 1 of, of both chapters is, is Israel thinks they're doing pretty good. There's prosperity at the time. Uh, Assyria has not really come in and attacked them too much. They kind of think that Assyria are the that they might have forgot about Israel, and so their their crops are coming in, their harvests are coming in, and, and things are, are are prosperous. And it seems it seems that that things are are good. And in these this prosperity, there's this delusion that things are okay, that everything seems to be okay because there's plenty. I mean, doesn't prosperity mean blessing? If I'm rich, doesn't that mean blessing? And this is what Israel fell into, this trap. And when Hosea tells them that judgment is coming, you can imagine, the, uh, uh, you can imagine how popular that is. You know, it's hard to convince somebody that judgment is coming when everything seems to be good. When they got a new truck in the driveway, a new home, the kids are all good, no one's on drugs. They're going to buy a boat in the summer. I mean, how do, you, how do you convince someone that judgment is coming when it seems like there's nothing but blessings all around them? And this is the unmistakable reality that lays before us throughout Scripture the truth that sometimes prosperity does not mean blessing. And this is what they were caught in. It was just like the, the precipice. It was like the, the, the sun was going down before the darkness came. And yet God in his, his righteousness and his judgment is slow, by the way, after thousands of years of his steadfast love. And even in the pronouncing of his judgment, isn't it amazing that God like, tells him exactly what, I'm go what he's going to do? He's not like the Assyrians, right? The Assyrians are going to come and attack him when they don't know, right? Like the thief in the night. They're going to attack him when they don't know. But God says, this is what I'm going to do. This is how it's going to be. What kind of strategy is that? What kind of, what kind of strategy? It's, it's a strategy of grace. It's a strategy to, to say, repent. To turn toward the Lord. And yet here in Hosea, in their prosperity, judgment is, is, is proclaimed and pronounced to them and prophesied to them like the story of Exodus in reverse. Three times, Chapter 9, and, and I think once or twice in 10, is mentioned this. And even chapter 8, there's this reversal of the Exodus. So this, this great Exodus story that is just so huge and so important to the Jews. It's so important to us. It's going in reverse. You're going to go back to Egypt. You're going to go back into slavery. You're going to go back into bondage. You're going to lose all sense of your identity. Everything that you have is going to be gone. All that gold and silver, gone. Those idols you, you trusted in, they are gone. Back into slavery you go. Three times. And yet we know that 
Egypt is, is, is uh, metaphorically, symbolically speaking of slavery, right? And so we know that it's Assyria that carries them off into exile. But the end result is good, or it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you go. Slavery is still slavery. And that's, what, that's what's so harsh about slavery. And even when we, we think about it in today as we study history, it's this all sense of stripping any kind of identity away from a person. And this is what God is doing in his judgment, is reversing the exodus to take them back into, back into exile, back into slavery. They would be homeless once again. They're not at home in Egypt. They never find a home in, in, in Assyria. back to where they were at Mount Sinai, where they were homeless there, where God found them as wild grapes. Remember back in verse 10. But tragically, everything goes wrong as we knew. You see there that they, they turn to, to Baal, Peor. It's mentioned, this is the story back in November, uh, November, Numbers 25, between Balak and Balaam. You know Balaam and the donkey, and that didn't work. So Balak said, uh, I, I know how we're going to get them. I know how we're going to deceive them and turn them away from their God. Is I'm going to send some Moabite hotties in there, and I'm going to tempt them to turn away from their God through these women. And so they, the men of Israel, are seduced. And they're turned to worship Baal, Peor. And it's a detestable thing. In fact, 24,000 people died from a plague because of that sin. Like, we're, we're not talking very long after Mount Sinai. We're not talking very long from the first exodus. Israel was guilty. And they're guilty of the same thing again. They're guilty of the same thing again. And this sin of, 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 of going into such debauchery and rebellion and rejection against, against, against God deserves such a curse. We talked a lot about, about last week how sin is just so dreadful. It has such dreadful consequences to it. Such an unimaginable conclusion we see here in this passage. Look at verse 11 in chapter 9. It says, Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. And we want to think about a bird flying away, and that's cool. But their glory is going to fly away. What is their glory? Their glory is their children. Their glory is, is their children, which is, their, which is their, their future, because children are a blessing from the Lord. They are all gifts from, from God. And they think that their, their fertility comes from this fake fertility God, Baal. And God says, what you are glorying in, what you think Baal, Baal is providing for you, I'm going to make that your shame. I'm going to make that your, your shame so that you will no longer glory in it, but you will be shameful of it. And so no more children. No more. No more births, no more pregnancy, no more conception. And those that will be born, they will be slaughtered. Like a flock of birds. There's a whole other meaning to a flock of birds dispersing, isn't it? Departing the land. God in his righteous judgment and just judgment of Israel will strip them of their glory. And in verse 14 of chapter 9, it seems as if Hosea is, is speaking again himself here, and he says, give them, O Lord, what you will give. Give them a miscarrying womb and, and, and dry breast. And it's almost like he's, he's coming in and he's, he's even asking the Lord for this. I think it's with, with a broken heart, a heart of deep anguish and seeing the levels and the depths of their sin and their, their guilt and, and their shame. And I think he even sees it himself. He is, he's praying, oh God, trusting in a sovereign God that he is always working for his glory and for their joy, even when pain and suffering and trials come and death of children and cancer. And he's praying, God, you are sovereign. Brothers and sisters, that's if we are praying for someone else who's going through trials and hurts and great pain. It's the kind of prayer that we would say that God, we would, we would ask God to deliver them from these trials or use it to strengthen them. 
that give them a greater faith in Christ. Or if it's a lost person, we, we would pray, God, use it to, to lead them to Christ. Or what is it if we gain the whole world yet lose our souls? He is sovereign. He is sovereign over all. He is holy, He is just, and He is good in every one of His judgments. And He is also good in His grace. So sin's dreadful conclusion is that it leads us to believe that we are good, that we're safe, we're secure, we're happy, we're in our, we're in our, we're in our homes, but that peace can become our, can become our shame. Chapter 10 speaks of this as they trusted in their idols. The thing that they bow down to is the thing that they are now going to be, to be ashamed of as it's going to be brought into the king of Assyria and used as, a, as, a, as, a, as, as, as nothing anymore. That's just another piece of gold to melt down and to make to something else. It will be their shame. Paul speaks of this idea in Philippians chapter 3. He says, their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. With their minds, they, set their, they, set, they are set on earthly things. This is what sin does. But even worse than their glory become their shame, we see in verse 15, in the mention of the city of Gilgal. Gilgal is where the people first asked for a king. Right? This is where they first asked for the king, they asked, and they wanted Saul. And this is what God said to Samuel as Samuel went and petitioned this before the Lord. This is what God said to him. He said, it is not you that they have rejected. I mean, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as their king. They're rejecting me. And in the, this rejection of God was that seed that was planted for the evil to come. The seed that planted, that, that yielded fruits of thousands of years of rejection and sin to the Lord. And so we come to verse 17. And it says, My God will reject them because they have not listened to Him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Slaves back in Egypt. Slaves back in Egypt. Mm. But Scripture is very clear. Scripture is very clear. God doesn't hide from us. doesn't hide His judgment from, from us and sin and the consequences of sin. So here, is, so here is Israel and the exodus that was so great is now being put back into reverse. But we know the good news. We know that Hosea 9 and 10, they're not the end of the story. Praise God. They're not the end of the story. We know that slavery, rejection in the wilderness is not the end of the story. We know that there is hope. There's a, a great hope, and this hope is even in Hosea. And we know from having a clear understanding of, <clears throat> of Scripture that, that to, to understand this hope, we have to look to Jesus. We have to look to, to Jesus here, that, that Jesus is, is, uh, is 100% God came in the flesh, 100% God. But, God but, but Jesus, as He came in the flesh, He was also human. And as human, He became humanity's new representative. He became a new Adam. And as this new Adam, in, in, as the Son of God in the flesh, He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was fully obedient to the commands of God. Every single one. Everywhere where Israel failed, where Adam failed, where David failed, where Moses failed, where Abraham failed, where we all failed, Christ was 100% perfect. Without a shadow of a doubt. Perfect, active obedience to the Lord. And in that obedience, and in that obedience, Jesus became our faithful representative. You know, in the Old Testament, it speaks of there would be a remnant to come. There would be a faithful remnant that would be preserved. And there was. But that points forward to Jesus. Jesus was that, that faithful remnant that, that made it all the way to the end. In fact, all the way up to the cross, Jesus was the only 
faithful Israelite left. Everybody turned from Jesus. He was God's faithful representative, and he was our representative. And it came down just to one person, Jesus. And so I want to show you this, that in Christ, this exodus reversal reached its very climax. That in Christ, he was reversing the exodus back to its greatest and worst moments. The greatest and worst moments. It is the darkest moment of all the exile. You see, the judgment of God, the judgment of God in full measure of the curse of the covenant. This curse that was going to be brought to them in in, in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. This this curse was, was poured out on Christ. You see, he was the only one that deserved those blessings. Remember the blessings of the, of the covenant? He's the only one that deserves them. But as our representative, God poured out his wrath completely on all the curses that were due to us, all the curse that was due to Israel. He poured out on his son. Complete separation from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's judgment falls on Jesus in our place. This is the beauty of substitutionary atonement. He paid the sacrifice that we could not pay. Look back at verse 17. Look at that. My God will reject them. Jesus. left to die on the cross alone in exile, feeling the the weight and the curse of all our sin. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3. He said, Christ redeemed us, who says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus experienced the full extent of the reversed exodus, the curse of the exile, the complete separation from God and from his father and from his home. And yet in his sacrifice, he accomplished a new exodus. A true exodus. The exodus back in Exodus was pointing to. A real freeing from slavery. Commenting on this, Tim Chester said, Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb who rescued us from slavery to sin and death and brings us home to a new creation in the presence of God. He puts the story back on track. He endures the the judgment we we deserve so that we can enjoy the promised ending to the story to come home to God and be part of his family. We're homeward bound. We are homeward bound because of Christ. All of our best images and thoughts on what, what home should be can all be gathered up and we can say to ourselves that that is our future in Christ. A perfect home. Because Jesus left his home. Because Jesus left, left his home. Because Jesus left his father. Because Jesus became a man. And he became a man who, who had nowhere to lay his head. And he died in the dark and alone so that we can be brought to the light and we can be brought all the way home. And this is where Hosea is pointing us, that even in such harsh, dark judgment that seems so so difficult to understand and it really questions a lot of the goodness of God when we read things like this, but all of this is screaming to us all of this is screaming to us because we understand the, the gospel that all of God's wrath that was due to, to you and that was due to me, just like it was due to Israel, is now completely satisfied in Christ. I mean, tell me, tell me, is, is that not the greatest of all loves? 
Is, is that not glorious? Is, is that not something that is infinitely worth our worship and all of our lives and all of our love and all of our affection? Is there anything greater than that? Use that in your fight against sin. Use that when sin comes against you. There's nothing more glorious than that. And so where does that leave us? What do we do now? We've mentioned this. This is a theme throughout Hosea. Is we repent. We repent. You know, until we're, until we're taken away home, brothers and sisters, we must be a people who are marked with humility. And in, a, in that humility, we are always repenting before the Lord and before each other. And in repentance, we, we know it's a turning around, and we know that there's an aspect of this confession, but, but repentance also bears fruit. Repentance bears a fruit of, of righteousness because it's turning from our sin and toward the Lord. And in turning toward the Lord, it bears a fruit of righteousness, and that fruit of righteousness is obedience. Repentance brings about obedience. And I skipped a really important verse, and we're going to turn back to it now. Go to Hosea 10. And look at verse 12. You all see that there? Hosea 10, verse 12. Sow for, your seal, for yourselves righteousness. All right? So we know what sow is. It means put out the seeds, plant, garden, cultivate. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap, gather Reap steadfast love. Break, your, break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You see, as we repent, as we repent, as we repent in, in humility, this is how we sow seeds of, of righteousness. And when we sow seeds of, of, of righteousness, we will bear fruits of righteousness. And I'm going to unpack for that, for that for you really quickly, and, and we'll be done. But in Galatians chapter 6, um, 7 through 9, Paul helps us with this. He says in verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he also reaps. That will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh, to his own flesh, will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit... Will be, from the, will be from the Spirit, will reap eternal life, and will not let us grow weary of doing good. And, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. If we do not give up. You see, I think what this passage is, is telling us is that these, these ordinary means of grace that God has given us is that sowing in righteousness. Here's what I mean by ordinary means of grace. I, I, mean, I mean reading and meditating on your scripture. I mean praying. I mean in worshiping. I mean gathering with the people. These are the ordinary means of, of grace that God has given us to sow seeds of, of, of righteousness. You see, this is what Paul is saying here in verse 8, is he's saying that you cannot indulge or sow into, into the deeds of the flesh and, and then kind of wonder to yourself, why am I not becoming like Jesus? If you're only sowing into the flesh, what does it say? You're only going to reap the flesh and corruption. If you're only sowing the sinful nature, you're only going to reap destruction. You say, listen, we, we cannot, we, we underneath, we need to understand that we cannot change ourselves through our law keeping and our codes. Change must begin in the heart. And this is what the Spirit of God does in, in changing our hearts. It tells us that in, even right there in Galatians 6. Where we're sowing in the Spirit. We're trusting in the, the Spirit of God that He is going to transform us in the inside out. But that doesn't mean that we just sit there. We're not just passive. 
We are active in our obedience. Because what the Spirit does is it, it replaces those, those evil, sinful desires with, with new desires. So that then we're able to sow righteousness. So we don't want to feed our sinful flesh. We avoid whatever might strengthen our sinful desires. You're saying, saying no to the sinful flesh is like farming or gardening. Not many of us are farmers. It's like gardening. When you say no to the sinful desires, it's like picking up that weed and pulling it out. It's like picking up that weed and, 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 and pulling out those weeds. I don't know if you've ever pulled weeds in the garden, but that job stinks. That's the worst. I, I, that is just the worst. Brothers and sisters, that is how it is to kill sin. We don't want to do it. We, we don't. Because sins are, can become a habit to us, and they're hard to pull up, and sometimes we even, we even like those things. And that's why we, we go back to Hosea 10, and he tells us, he says, break up that fallow ground. In that hard, crusted dirt of our hearts, there is, there is sin. It's got to be uprooted. It's got to be pulled out. And you just can't pull the tops off, right? Because what's going to happen? It's just going to come right back. We have to, we have to kill it at its, at its root. And this is the constant fight against sin. Because weeds, they always want to get deep. They want to get, they want to get deep into our hearts. And there's no easy way around this. There's no, there's no roundup that does this job. We need the tools, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, as our trowels and our rakes to break up that fallow ground of our hearts. We replace the weeds. We replace the weeds with the Spirit. I love that. As, the, as, as well as sin wants to put uh, weeds there, we pull those out and we put in the Word of God. We plant the gospel into our hearts and we plant it into our, to our minds and we use the word of God that is given to us. We use these ordinary means of grace given to us. We meditate on his word. We worship. We worship and we embed ourselves deeply within his church, within his, within his people. We pray. We disciple someone. We disciple someone and then we, we, we get discipled. We get discipled by someone else. These are these ordinary means of grace that God has given us. Also, the participating in the, in the Lord's Supper together. This is God's grace and to build up faith in our lives so that we can weed out sin and break up that fallow ground so that we can sow for ourselves righteousness and that he will come. And I, I, you know, Going back to that uh, Galatians 6, it says, even when we don't see growth, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And even in verse 12 here in Hosea, it says, for he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And these seeds, as we see, these seeds of righteousness will produce a, a good harvest, will produce good fruit, good fruit that we all can see, that, that everyone can delight in and give glory to God for. And this is how we act as, as, as those now being, been, been, been renewed by Christ and as we saw the, the reversal of the exodus and then Christ bringing it right back again to the, to the greater exodus of freedom. I want to close with this. I don't want you to be disillusioned. You know. We're not at home yet. We're not there. There's still restlessness. We're still not 100% safe. There's still sin. There's still death. There's still pain. There's still sickness. The flesh still wants to draw us into sin, into temptation. We're still foreigners in a foreign land. We're still foreigners. We're, we're sojourners. We're sojourners in a foreign land. This is not our home. It may feel like it, and, and the earth was created to look like it, and it looks like our home, but it's not our home yet. We're not, we're not there. But we're reminded that in Christ, God will bring us all the way home.
home. He will. And one thing I want you to to see really quickly is is that every single time we gather together as his church, as as his people, did you know that he's reminding us of that? He's reminding, he's reminding us. He's kind of, he kind of stirs that in us a little bit. He stirs, should be stirring that in us. That every time that we gather as a, as a church, he's reminding of, us of that home. Because in our relationships with, with Christ, in our relationship together, it's pointing to home. I point up. I don't think heaven's really up in the sky. But, but home. It's all pointing there. And you know, in the church, we, we get to experience heaven on earth now. We get to experience heaven on, on earth now as we gather together. And it's only in the church that we get that. The, uh, what do we say when we talked, I think a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the church, the dearest place on earth. It's the dearest place on earth. I said at the very beginning, the very beginning of the sermon, that, that we've only really felt like we've been home in this last year. But you know it's not a place. It's not my home where I'm at now. You know where I feel at home? I feel it in my relationship with the Lord, and I feel it with you. I'm at, I'm at home with, with you. We're not, we're not building a house. God is, is giving us a home, but I feel at home with, with you. And brothers and sisters, I pray that as we, as we gather together more and more, and as God continues to give us these, these weeks together... Pray that that home, that longing for that home grows more and more. And that it helps us. It helps us not to long for the world. The world says this is what home is. You've got to look like Crate and Barrel. You've got to have all those cool gadgets from Williams Sonoma or Walmart, Walmart, two different places here. You must have all the cool things, the newest and the greatest. That's what will make you feel home, brothers and sisters. It will only leave you wanting does not satisfy. But if you press into this and you sow seeds of righteousness in this, there will be satisfaction and joy. There will be satisfaction and joy. So let us press in together that we will sow sow righteousness into eternal things, eternal treasures that will last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and your word. I pray that as we respond, you would, give all, you would get all the glory. You'd help us to respond as encouraging one another. Thank you for your son. Thank you for him representing us, representing us as, as the greatest of all humanity to take upon our curse the curse that was deserved to us so that we can be brought home. And let us now remain faithful to sow seeds of righteousness, O God, so that we may reap steadfast love. We pray these things for your glory. Amen.